Welcome to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. And this program is about innovation, innovative ideas, people doing transcending systemic barriers, which is what we're going to be talking about in this program, because there's no stronger systemic barriers than you'll find in the higher education system. It is very difficult to change. And yet, in this program, you're going to be listening to somebody who has succeeded in doing that and puts them, therefore, in the category of the global, same kind of community that's in the global responsible leadership initiatives. Needless to say, it all started with a book. Normally, when people read a book, business book in particular, and then they take it back to their companies, it's done badly. It's co-opted. It's not thought through. It's just sort of superimposed, and let's glue it on and paste it here and see how it fits. And then when it fails, there's um, much blaming that goes on. That's not what happened with uh, Stephanie Glodden when she read Doug Kirkpatrick's book, Beyond Empowerment, which is about self-management. So Stephanie read the book took it into the Apollo Education Unit at the University of Phoenix. She's here with us today to talk about what she did, what happened, and along with a whole bunch of other really cool and innovative projects going on in higher education, which is delightful. Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Donna. So let's start with telling us, what did you do with Doug's book? <laughs> Tell us how well, that happened. Yeah, you know, there's... So here, let me let me frame kind of what the environment was like, and then I'll I'll get into Doug's book. But um, you know, I have have been a leader for a little bit with University of Phoenix, and I was trying to adopt um, some agile frameworks into my organization. And um, I realized from a leadership perspective that um, the way we were structured and this hierarchical kind of chain of command scenario had really kind of institutionalize people to not really have a high level of peer accountability and, and trust, frankly, that's necessary in order to be effective with the Agile framework. And so I was really kind of searching for something to help me figure out a different organizational approach um, to help us along our journey with the Agile frameworks. And it just so happened that I read an article in Harvard Business Review called First Let's Fire All the Managers. And Doug Kirkpatrick um, was a co-author of that article. And so I looked up his information at the bottom of the, the article within Harvard Business Review and found his book. And I read it and I fell in love with the concept of self-management. And the way Doug lined the book out using Morningstar Farms and, and their work, you know, actually provided a framework for me and my organization to kind of follow because as you alluded to, oftentimes we're, we're provided a book or a framework or methodology and, you know, everybody would love to say that, that they want to do it, but the heavy lifting is the execution and uh, the adoption across the, the teams. And so the biggest thing that we did was everybody read the book and we had book club. And we sat down as an organization in our first, you know, entree into truly working on our self-management practices and as a team um, determined what pieces of the book and the structure we could adopt. And we put together a project, basically, to transform our organization, but we did it all as a team. And very thoughtfully done, I might add. Yeah, and, you know, it was key to have the, the team engaged in, and his book was very meaningful. There, there are a couple of uh, sections in their philosophical, not necessarily framework, that really spoke to the group because 
as much as you think if you say to to people inside of a, a corporation, especially a hierarchical corporation, look, I, I want you to have some autonomy and I want I want there to be some solid um, peer accountability going on. I don't want you to think that you have to come, you know, and ask permission for most things that you do in your job because you're you're a great professional and I trust you. You would think that just by saying that, that, you know, people would kind of pick the ball up and run with it. But what I, what I found was that, you know, most folks on my team had been working in a traditional hierarchical chain of command and they just simply didn't, they, they were afraid, you know, they found comfort in that chain of command and they had kind of been institutionalized. So the reference back to Beyond Empowerment in a couple of sections that Doug wrote in the book that really hit home for, for um, my team and myself as, a, as the leader. You know, he had a few passages where he, he basically asked the question back to the reader, when you're on your own in your personal life and you're buying a home, which is a, you know, one of the largest things that you would do, you know, as an individual personally, it's a huge purchase and a, a, you know, a huge decision to make. Who do you ask permission to do that to? You don't. Now, you might consult and obviously do your homework, but you're making that very large decision on your own. So why is it when you walk through the, the doors of, a, of your organization, can you not make that large of a decision? So that really hit home to everybody when we really talk through that. And that's a great observation because I see not just, you know, I see in project management where, where an organization or, or an organization like where somebody will simply say, okay, you've got permission to innovate, go forth and do it. And, of course, everybody sits around and doesn't do it. And then, then, then the next question is from a management level is, why, why aren't they doing it? We told them we gave them permission. That's all we need to do. And it's like, no, if you've killed the initiative through the command and control structure, you've got to find places where you can start, a, you know, spark it again. And, and so I tell us exactly how your team took Doug's book and what came out of it? What was, what was the real value in the workplace of implementing Beyond Empowerment? So, so the real value was, in and of itself, was, um, you know, the team taking this project on themselves and, and creating the framework. Because, again, my organization is, as you mentioned, I'm, I've got about 50 resources. We run a little bit of an um, IT shop in the business. And, and so we still have to work in the confines of the traditional hierarchy around us. So what my team did and, and what we did as leaders was we took pieces from the book, basically what framed out the process that Morningstar Farms did, um, such as coming up with your personal value statement, also kind of framing out kind of colleague operating level agreements. And we didn't formalize that, but that was a way of setting the stage and expectations for how, how we depend on each other, how we are going to treat each other and how we can hold one another accountable. And so the journey took about a year. And what we did was we took pieces. First and foremost, it was just simply taking some of the philosophical points of the book and discussing them as an organization, as a team, to start you know, socializing and making everybody comfortable. The second piece as leaders, because this was just as trans, this was a huge transformation as leaders too, because in, in the chain of command, in that hierarchical point of view, you're accountable. 
you know, so regardless of what is going on around you, you know, the buck stops with you. And so that tends to make us as leaders put way too much control over our organization for fear of our own accountability. And so as leaders, what we had to start doing was um, stepping back, but figuring out where we needed to insert and where we didn't need to be inserted in the conversation. But some of the very first things we did was if we had someone come sit down and talk to us about an issue that they had with another team member, the first thing out of our mouths, um, and this came, you know, especially from the book, was we pushed back and said, have you had a conversation first with that, with said person? And if the answer was no, then we would say, you know, I'm going to ask you to go back and first have a conversation with said person. And if you're, you're struggling with that, then, you know, help me understand how I can mediate the conversation for you if you're not quite sure how to be constructive in that. And so the more times we push that back, or the more times that they would come in to us and, and um, have an issue with another individual, and then we would also just call the other person in right then and there, then, then the more times the, the team just came to expect that, first of all, I've got the autonomy and the trust by my leader, but second of all, I, I should resolve this because we're all in this together, and there is a human approach that we can take. So that's what we were implementing as leaders. Um, so I'll pause a minute on that and see if you have any additional questions there. Well, I, I appreciate that. I can't help but think that what that does is it, it provides a podium for growth that if you just carried on and didn't say, hey, can you you know introduce that checkpoint? Hey, did you talk to this person who you may not be comfortable talking with? You don't grow because those uncomfortable edges are the places where you actually... You don't. And the, the other side of it, and, and so when when Doug came to visit us, I wanted him to hear firsthand from my leaders about this, but for me as a leader and also for, for my other teammates, and I know just the individual people on our team too feel this way, learning these competencies and really changing this, this focus absolutely changed our lives personally, not just professionally, but in how we see people. And, and that's one other point, and maybe this is a, a bit in the book as well, but the other side of it was seeing seeing the humans sitting beside me and caring about them. That's a much different approach than you're ever going to see often in that hierarchical chain of command. We're, we're not necessarily given the license to, to see people as people, as human beings in the business place. And so that was the other big part for us in our organization in order to execute this from the book was... was was fundamentally caring about people. And that does not mean that you don't give solid feedback and there's not expectations and accountability, but there's a way to do it. And when you mention growth, it absolutely makes you grow as not only a professional, but as a human being to learn these approaches and, and to see people as a person, uh, you know, and, and fundamentally care about them. Well, and we know from other workplace research and so forth, that that's the glue. That's the real solid glue that, that ignites performance and takes it to different levels, so higher levels. So, so that's awesome. Can we hop over to Red Flint? Because I know you've got something yes. interesting going on there. Tell us about Red Flint. Um, Red Flint is, is a, a new endeavor or a new venture for University of Phoenix. It's, it's in Las Vegas in mid-October 
And Red Flint for University of Phoenix is basically a center of innovation and experiential hands-on learning opportunities so that we can start to figure out how to really teach the competencies that are necessary in this 21st century economy. As a higher education institutions, most of us are kind of failing at really figuring out how to be effective and preparing the workforce for our needs today. And additionally, Red Flint is focused on entrepreneurship as well. And so, so basically, there's three main tenets of Red Flint is educate, incubate, and accelerate. And the education element of it are smaller bite-sized chunks of education that are very much hands-on experiential learning opportunities with relevant technology and entrepreneurship. We, we believe that that's you know, really vital and we're gonna be very relevant with our education delivery. What we won't be doing in Red Flint is the traditional four-year degree program. We still have our campuses in Las Vegas and our whole online system to support that. What we're gonna be focused on is how we can help learners have bite-sized chunks of education that are important to meet them where they're at right now and to get them to hit the ground running, whether it be starting their own business or being a valuable, productive resource from day one inside of a company. And that doesn't necessarily go with a four-year degree. And so this is our opportunity from the educate side to really learn how to deliver effective and relevant education. Then from the incubation side, it's exactly what you would expect. We're going to provide business incubation services to really help budding entrepreneurs be as successful as they possibly can be. Um, And then we'll have an accelerator where we're partnering with Iron Yard Ventures, who's a top accelerator in the country, and we'll be vertically aligned to the hospitality and entertainment sector, which makes sense because we're in Las Vegas and the world's largest hotels exist here. And so we're partnering with some of these large corporations um, to do open innovation. So just like many of us in, in big corporations, we, we lose the ability to innovate. We weren't really designed to innovate once we get big and mature because the, the name of the game becomes profitability and you know hitting the forecast each quarter to keep Wall Street at bay. And we become extremely risk averse. And so it's much easier if, you know, a smaller startup organization takes the problems that the big corporation is trying to solve, but is sort of stalling in their research and development or product development organizations and hands it over to a company that can actually build that product or service out on their behalf. And that's kind of the model for the accelerator here um, in Las Vegas. Um, So it's a very new venture for us, and accelerators and incubators are not uncommon in the university space, but this one is different in that, you know, we want to put together this ecosystem that we feel like is important to help the local economy, help lift it up through providing talented pool of resources for the workforce, but additionally, having a different model for entrepreneurships and startups because we'll be absolutely placing the problems that these corporations need solved. So they have a much higher probability of coming up with new products and services where they can actually sell the product or get a contract with these, these casinos. So we'll have a much, much bigger rate of, of um, long-term survival of the entrepreneurs.
And it's open to the community. This is not just for University of Phoenix students. It's open to anybody. Which I really appreciate because I collaborate with Dan Feldman out of Denver, Colorado. He's doing something called Agile and Beyond, which is a podcast series. And one of them was with a millennial group who basically their message was the world is moving so fast that if you go to university for four years, by the time you come out, it's not going to be the same world. And one of the people on the call had been through exactly that, had taken their BCom and came out and went, and the whole economy had shifted. And so now they were doing something completely different. So I'm really glad to know that it's open. It's you've left it open, and that yes. people can because we've got one locally in Vancouver, and it's not open. It's closed. So it, right. unless I misunderstand what they're doing, that's what how it appears. So this is very very exciting. Yes, yeah. You know, our one of our mission here is democratize access um, to the to the skills that are necessary to engineer 21st century successes. So, you know, with that perspective, it's not just one sector or one university or, you know, one part of the economic ecosystem that's going to kind of solve this challenge for us. And we recognize that. That's one of the main reasons why we're open. And we're also, you know, working in partnership with UNLV, with the community college system and with Clark County School District, because it's going to take all of us to try to figure out what it's going to take to help these folks unlearn and relearn at the speed by which technology is changing. And it definitely becomes irrelevant once that four-year degree is done. And that doesn't mean that we don't need to have, you know, four-year bachelor's degrees if you want to really climb up the food chain. But what we do need to do as education institutions is really figure out how to properly prepare this workforce. Well, exactly. And I mean, even if somebody does take on a four-year program, it's not with the expectation that the precise content that they're studying is going to be what's going to show up on the world on the outside. So it's that real, you know, permeable membrane between the academia and reality as it's emerging. Right. And we have, you know, we've had lots of good validation. We, I, I was just, I'm, I'm here in Las Vegas right now. Yeah, I was meeting with the, the CTO, Joshua Solis of MGM International Resorts yesterday. And, you know, he he states just exactly that. He gave us a scenario yesterday where he has a, a team of professionals that are working in a cloud environment and they're struggling to get qualified talent in. And, you know, we're, we're partnering with MGM in, in a more unofficial way right now. Um, just to try to understand what the challenge is. And, and he specifically stated, will you be creating content or curriculum that we need? And I said, yes, that's why we're sitting here. We're going to be creating exactly what you need to, to, to support your organization because they're really struggling, just like many other corporations are as well. So, so there's good validation that we're on the right path here with what we need to be doing. Oh, absolutely no question, because that is one of the issues in, in the higher education is that they're not adapting the content to fit. I, I, I hear even in the local colleges near Vancouver, they're still teaching forming, storming, norming, and performing, and that psychological model isn't relevant when you're working in a collaborative workplace. Because right. They, you know, it's, it's, it's working with diversity as part of the fluidity of relationships as opposed to being a process that you psychologically have to track down. So let's talk about, about systemic issues because you're doing, you're taking a real leadership role in, in a very entrenched systemic environment. Not easy. Um, <laughs> no. What kinds of things have you had to deal with uh, either in, in the, you know, implementing self-management through the Apollo 
side of the, you know, at the University of Phoenix or through Red Flint? If, you know, what kinds of things have you had to, hmm, shall we say, uh, improvise? <laughs> it, it, this is not easy to be what I, I like to call myself an intrapreneur in a big corporation. The culture inside of corporations are, is, is so strong and, um, you know, especially for our university, and I think this is probably indicative of a lot of universities, you know, there, there becomes sort of a belief system or a bureaucracy that exists inside of there that is very difficult to penetrate. And when you come in and you start to poke holes in and you um, start to question the belief system, you're not always well received. Um, and then when you're doing things that people just simply don't understand, like the self-management that, that, that can tend to make it even worse. And so you have to have a little bit of personal fortitude to kind of stand, your, stand, stand up and basically say, you all believe that you're on the mainland and I'm on the island over here and I really like my island and I think my island's going to be the mainland, so I'm going to stick it out over here because I think this is the right thing to do and the right, right place to be for the future of, of, in this case, our university, but just for the future in general of how we should be leading and how we should be running our organizations. And so for me personally, it's been tough. I've learned a lot and grown a lot, but the the biggest takeaway is that you just need to persist because getting something like Red Flint out of a university, as, as you've coined it, that has been entrenched in a particular way of delivering education is no small feat between our legal position, the regulatory, the accreditation aspects of it, and then just the general cultural belief system. And so you just have to be prepared to take some hits and just know that this is the right thing to do. Now, I I have to be curious here because one of the things that's clear to me is that you you're you're guiding this company, you're guiding Apollo, you're guiding the University of Phoenix right into the future. They've got an extremely good chance of succeeding, whereas there's a lot of other educational institutions that will simply die if they do not make these kinds of innovative moves and bold moves. They won't be around. Is there uh, a portion, at least, inside the bureaucracy of academia that understands that? Uh, or are you having to find your community outside, like the Global Leadership Responsible Leadership Initiative, for example? Yeah, so there's definitely a couple of great champions that see that. So our two executive deans of College of Vice and T and School of Business are the primary. These are the two colleges that are basically sponsoring Red Flint. And we all agree about the fact that ed- higher education has to change um, so, so I think that there's common ground there for sure inside inside of the inside of the University of Phoenix for some of us. For others, there it's a, it's a more difficult vision for them to try to hang on to because they're they're still entrenched in the the four year degree or the ways that we have to do things. And frankly, the the governing bodies like the Higher Learning Commission, who's our accreditation body in the Department of Education. And all the various state um, regulatory bodies actually, you know, make it really difficult to try to do something different because that process is so long. So because of all of that, then it also makes people stay stronger in their belief system about the way you have to deliver education instead of questioning why do we have to do that and why can't we even question those accreditation bodies. And so 
I would say that there is good support inside University of Phoenix, but I would say that it's hard to execute it even when you do have a good new idea, either by our own, we get in our own way or, or just simply by those regulatory bodies. Now, I've done a lot of work external, though, as well, because I don't have a point of reference necessarily inside of University of Phoenix for trying to understand new ways and new approaches. And so I, I, I definitely, I sit on the board of directors for the Consortium for Service Innovation out of San Francisco. And so I have great access to some solid thought leaders as well. Yeah, and that, help, that helps enormously. Yeah, yeah. But, but we definitely have the desire. There's def, it's definitely there. It's just a matter of how, how to effectively break down our desire to say no right out of the gate. Yeah. Well, I think in related to that, it's about vision. It, it, it's about because because part of that is if you have the vision, you can see where you're going. We, we, I know that sounds obvious, but, but I've talked to a lot of organizations. I tried to do something innovative in the UK last year, and what I ran into repeatedly was a short-term view on getting things done. So it, there would there were, there wasn't that that awareness that there's a whole outside world shift going on. And it's showing up, of course, the evidence is there. There's lower enrollment in certain programs, but it has still hadn't clicked in that this is a systemic consequence of what's going on in the world today. So I really appreciate, again, the tenacity that you bring to this. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And it has been, just for me as well, it's been a big journey and, and a growth opportunity for me too, just to try to understand how do you actually execute something, whether it be a university or inside of a corporation, that's very different and very counter. And, you know, what does it take to truly be innovative? Um, because it's not, it's not easy, especially when that's not part of the DNA from the beginning of the organization. Now, knowing that we're going to have some people that are either looking at going to business schools or are attending or are part of a business school listening to this program, what counsel would you give to them in terms of, you know, what, what you bring to it personally to carry forth this? And you've mentioned a few things already, but this is, this is not light work. It, it requires a strong, a strength, an inner strength, I think, yes. that, that, uh, that doesn't come lightly. So what would you suggest, any particular hints and tips you'd give them walking in to, to really start tr- steering their, their organization toward the future? You know, what I would, I would say, number one, is to, um, you know, do some solid relationship building when they're walking in and, and, do, and, and really practice solid listening. I know that sounds basic. But it's, it's very profound at the same time. There's a couple of things here. The relationships, first and foremost, because in order to execute some of these things, you have to have some good organizational agility. And so you want to focus on building very solid, productive relationships with those around you, even if at some point the conversation might have to be tough. At least you can establish a bit of a trust factor and respect factor, because honestly, as people, when we meet somebody... We, we decide from a relationship aspect if we're going to trust them before we care if they have the credentials to do what they say they're going to do. And so I would say that would be a, you know, a key tenant for somebody coming out of business school, coming into an organization, is to really focus on relationship building and trust, as well as to have a platform or a belief system that you believe in. 
I think that's key too, um, because in the process of trying to execute something that's absolutely transformational or innovative, you you'll take a you'll, you'll get a lot of hits because when people get scared, they can get hostile, and and then you 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 can be in a position where you start to question your own belief system, and so I would say. And I'm not talking necessarily from a religious point of view, but just what do you stand for as a person? And what what do you believe is is important from an operating perspective? And I, I, I think that you need to understand your identity in that. And that's what that's what will allow you to have some, some of that inner strength and personal fortitude to get through it. Fantastic counsel. Anything you'd like to add? I would just say it's imperative that our big corporations start to change the way they think. And, um, and we as people who work within them need to figure out how to help them do that. Or I do believe that you'll continue to see more and more large corporations fail, not necessarily because of disruption coming to hit them, but because they're not going to be able to sustain their workforce by operating this way. Yeah, absolutely right. No question about that at all. Where do people go for more information on what you're doing? Um, First of all, you can go to redflintvegas.com so you can see what we're doing with Red Flint. That would be great to take a good spot. For for my other activities, you know, I don't really have any any link to me other than my LinkedIn. And my name is spelled so unusually, you can find me very easily. And I absolutely would love to entertain, you know, if you, if you go to LinkedIn and want to message me, you know, this is, there, there are aspects about this conversation I'm really passionate about, so, so please do. It's Stephanie with an E, so S-T-E-P-H-E-N-I-E. Correct. Gloden, G-L-O-D-E-N. You look, up, look up Stephanie. Stephanie, brilliant interview. Thank you very much for being on the program. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to thank Doug Kirkpatrick from the uh, Morningstar Self-Management Institute, who has very kindly continued to keep his eyes open for people doing innovative things for bringing me Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed the program with her today. My work, as, as I believe most of you who are regular listeners know, involves equipping both leaders and organizations with the consciousness and therefore the skill set, the mindset, the leadership level that and decision-making capacity to handle complexity and uncertainty in what we know is going to be high-speed. It is already high-speed change, but it's going to get much, much faster. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling fatigued by so much negativity in the world, there is an alternative, and it amounts to stepping into a higher potential. So feel free to reach out to me, please, through my website from insighttoaction.com and or through LinkedIn. I thank you very much for your support for the program. Naturally, I'd appreciate any shares that you can do to help the word get out there so that these brilliant people and their ideas and their innovations can be shared across a a wider audience. So thank you very much. Appreciate your support.